This is a reading from the Gospel of Mark. Then he went home, and the crowd came together again, so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him, for people were saying, He has gone out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebul, and by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but his end has come. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then indeed, the house can be plundered. Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, he has an unclean spirit. This is the Gospel of the Lord. As we continue ruminating on the third chapter of the Gospel of Mark tonight, we recognize that a life of knowing Jesus is also a life of knowing the devil. A life of knowing Jesus is also a life of knowing the devil, which a couple of eyebrows raised when I said that. But let me begin to explain what I mean by that claim. Um, we can see the truthfulness that this is so. First of all, just by reference to the shape of the stories that we read in the gospel, the narratives that the gospels are. If you were to remove all of Jesus' dealings with the devil from the gospel narratives, all of Jesus' dealings with the devil and the devil's minions, then you would have very different books than the four Gospels that we find in the New Testament. They would be different and much shorter, much, much shorter books. And so what I mean, first of all, that a life of knowing Jesus is also a life of knowing the devil, is simply that to know anyone is to, to know them in the midst of their doings. And a great preponderance of Jesus' doings are dealings with the devil. A life of knowing Jesus is also a life of knowing the devil. Um, and yet it seems to me that most Christians don't know this about what it means to know Jesus. That to know Jesus is to know the devil. Most Christians I know don't. Some Christians do. Uh, Chance the Rapper does. But for many Christians, our knowledge of Jesus is hindered by a lack of knowledge about Satan, or perhaps even by a kind of self-conscious ambivalence or embarrassment, an ambivalence towards Satan, or almost a kind of embarrassment about Satan and, uh, and the demonic. Um, more than one theologian has pointed out that, that American Christians especially, and people living in nations like ours, we tend to think that once we had modern medicine and uh, in the social sciences that, that we no longer needed to take Satan and the demonic in the scriptures all that seriously. That we can now relegate all of that preponderance of material in the scriptures about Satan to this kind of like vague dismissal under the, under the heading of, uh, of kind of just modern medicine and uh, of psychology or the social sciences. Um, what we've done effectively, though, is we've, we've come to ignore a great deal of scriptural material. Um, and as such, we, we presumably have shut down a whole arena of what it means for us to know Jesus in the fullness of his salvation and deliverance. Um, so my goal tonight is, is kind of simple. Um, 
even though it might be kind of lengthy. My, my goal is to try to begin to bring into view all of that, or a good bit of that scriptural material about the devil, that we, um, that we have de-emphasized. To begin to try to allow it the place in our attention that it should have. I'm a sucker for stuff that we've missed in the Bible. Right? Anytime I run across something that I'm like, wow, there's a lot of this thing, but we seem to not be paying much attention to it. I'm a sucker for that, and I, and I tend to want to be like, look at all of it. All right? So that's kind of uh, what I'm going to try to do tonight. So to an extent, especially at the beginning of what I'm going to say here, I'm going to be talking especially about, uh, I'm going to be kind of offering an overview or a survey of the New Testament account of Satan as a whole. Um, say, pointing out some of the ways that what we read tonight is in synergy or in symphony with that. And then I'll move on to focus a little bit more specifically on Mark chapter 3 and then do some other stuff after that. So here we go. Seems to me we need a kind of remedial education about the devil. And so uh, here's a place that we might begin. First we can note that our conception of the devil or Satan um, and the kind of idioms in which we are liable to construe the devil um, are first of all, we're, we're liable to think of him in relatively private terms. So chiefly as an influencer of persons in our conscience, on our shoulder, for example. We're liable to construe Satan in private, even petty and cartoonish ways. But here, which is to say in really personal ways, right? But here, what we read tonight, as well as elsewhere in the New Testament, the idiom with which Scripture describes Satan is one of reign and dominion and kingship. Satan in the New Testament is a political force, a political actor, and he is so on both a cosmic and an earthly scale. Right? He's a cosmic ruler. The ruler in the air, or the heavens, he's described in some places. And, he, and his political potency also is brought to bear among the kingdoms on earth. For example, here, Satan, uh, Beelzebul, different, different titles of Satan are invoked by the Jerusalem scribes. Um, I'm going to say more about this later, but sort of in a, in a political mover to try to diminish Jesus' power and influence among the populace. In the attempt to overpower Jesus. This is a political mover in which Satan's name is being evoked. But his power as a ruler is at play in more than just the fact that they're paying lip service to his name. The way Jesus describes Satan in the passage we read tonight entails that Satan is a ruler with subjects under his rule. He has minions. There are demonic ranks at Satan's command, such that should a demon be found to be casting out another demon, the terminology that would be needed in order to explain what's going on there would be political terminology. It would be like a general turning his sword against his own soldiers, or mutiny in the ranks of an army. Right? That house wouldn't be able to stand. That kingdom is already coming to an end. Jesus, in Mark chapter 3, describes the devil as a ruler, a prince, at the helm of a kingdom. Though Satan and his minions um, are spiritual creations, creatures, um, which is, by which I mean they don't have bodies, right? They're non-corporeal, they don't have flesh. Though they are spiritual, that does not mean that Satan's reign and power is not a concrete phenomenon in the world, that it isn't experienced in the flesh, that it can't be observed concretely in the world. To the contrary, in more and less straightforward ways, the New Testament describes the reign of man-made political authorities as subservient to the devil. Right? So, insofar as we think of earthly political structures or ruling, reigning authorities as concrete phenomena in this world. And they are. They're not only concrete, but they, they certainly are. Um, scripture 
does not make a strong distinction between the concrete reality, which is the reign of human beings in this world, and the reign of Satan. Rather, again, Scripture describes the reign of man-made political authorities as subservient to the devil. One of the places that you can see this is in the temptation narratives that we find uh, in both Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. So the account from the Gospel of Luke, at one point, Satan says to Jesus, uh, Then the devil led Jesus up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to Jesus, To you I will give their glory and all this authority. It has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. So what's, what's easy to miss, and yet what's right on the surface of that moment, is that the kingdoms of this world belong to the devil. All of the ruling authorities on the planet, Satan shows them to Jesus, and he says, they're mine. They've been given to me, and they are at my disposal, such that I could bestow their authority upon someone else. The reign of Satan, as described in Scripture, is greater than the reign of any merely earthly ruler. It swallows up and encompasses the ruling authorities of human beings, such that any encounter with an earthly political order is also at least liable to be an intersection and an encounter with the dominion and the reign of Satan. Our conception of the devil, in the same way that so this initial contrast is between the personal or the private with the, with the public or the political, right? Our conception of the devil and the demonic is also liable to construe Satan as rare or the demonic as a rare thing. So frequently, in, in the few occasions that you might hear another Christian in this room or elsewhere speaking about the devil or the demonic, it is likely to be in an occasion um, where they are reaching for a description that, that, that makes evident how unusual the thing is or the person is. So when we reach for a description like possessed by Satan, so you might say that your roommate's cat is possessed by Satan, by which you mean that this cat is extraordinarily evil uh, in ways that, I mean, you really are trying to get the point across. So like, no, it's, this is not a livable situation. This thing is really, really, really exceptionally bad. Or if you were to say after an interaction with a person, um, I think that person has a demon, it would be very clear that what you meant by that, by suggesting this person was possessed, first of all, we would all understand that probably you were exaggerating, but also that you were reaching for a description that was trying to convey either just how much you hate that person, or are angry at them, or disgusted with them, or just how exceptionally, unusually, way above and beyond normal kind of that they are. Does that make sense? So the rare occasions that we speak about the devil or his minions are, are used to try to point to something that is rare. By contrast, Satan and his minions are anything but extraordinary or unusual in the Gospels. The world of the Gospels is a world infested by demons. It is rife with the agents of Satan's dominion. In the Gospels, the demonic is ordinary. And for that matter, who is and isn't possessed, there's not as cleanly defined a line between the, the people that are possessed by Satan and the people that aren't in the Gospels as we might like to think. In the Gospels, the demonic is ordinary. The world that the Gospels describe, that the New Testament describes, that the whole Bible describes. It's a world uh, described as a territory that's occupied by the reign of Satan. And people themselves are the, the typical bastions or fortifications of the enemy or the invading soldiers, right? The world is, a, is an occupied territory of Satan's reign, and people themselves are, are the places 
where the reign of Satan is most likely to be evident, like Satan's fortresses or fortifications or bastions of authority. Across the board throughout the New Testament, the presence, it's a very common presence of Satan and his minions, the presence and influence of Satan is experienced as oppression, as affliction, and harm. Um, in more and less obvious ways. So it always is a damaging presence, even when it is masquerading as something else. It always is harmful and oppressive and binding, even when the people who are bound and being harmed might not recognize themselves to be suffering under the authority of Satan. There is obvious harm, Really conspicuous kind of harm, like the demoniac who we'll read about in a couple of weeks, who is so thoroughly possessed by many, many demons that he is like shackled and chained, but with superhuman strength, like breaks the shackles and chains and is cutting himself and is like a, almost like an animal out in the wilderness. But there's also less obvious harm that Satan does and that his minions do in the scriptures. The, the, for example, just like Satan is portray, portrayed as, as trying to interrupt or thwart the work, the redemptive work that the Lord is trying to do in our lives. So for example, in the parable of the sower, in the very next chapter of the Gospel of Mark, after this one, Jesus describes Satan as a robber of God's work. Um, that the seed of the word is sown, but that the reason some people don't receive the word is because Satan comes and robs it away from them before it can take root in their lives. The more carefully we read scripture, the more it becomes plain that Satan is at work, not just in certain moments of temptation, not just in certain kinds of sin, but that Satan is at work whether he's written into the story conspicuously or not, that Satan is at work in every form and experience of temptation. Um, I, that, to me, is a significant thing. I mean, I, I think my tendency is to think, sure, Satan tempts Adam and Eve, and we may be able to point to, to some other places in the New Testament. Like we see him tempting Jesus, but he doesn't like, surface on, in, like real conspicuously in the narrative a lot of the time as always being the temptation. But more careful attention to Scripture and to what people have written about what it's like to live with Jesus for the last 2,000 years reveals that Satan is at work in every temptation that we face. Indeed, for the church fathers, for the people we call the saints, some of our earliest theologians in the church, for them, for the church fathers, to speak of sin itself is already to be unavoidably talking about the devil. There's no such thing as talking about sin that isn't automatically talking about the devil. That's not the same thing as saying that sin and the devil are the same thing, right? But that sin is a phenomenon in this world is not comprehensible apart from an understanding of Satan. And likewise, to speak of Satan's reign for the church fathers, is to be speaking about what it's like to be in the grip of sin. With an ear to a variety of New Testament passages, and especially to the description of the devil that we read from Revelation just a few minutes ago, um, that description of, of Satan as the one who accuses, who accuses us night and day, we can say Satan is the one who holds us in the thrall of condemnation. He, he holds us under the description of accusation and the experience of being under Satan's reign is to be in the thrall of condemnation, to be outside of the grace and mercy of God, to know yourself as one crushed by the guilt of your sin. Um, okay, so... That's like some, a beginning of a survey of stuff in the New Testament, right, about the devil, right? And now I'm going to kind of transition to speak more specifically about Mark chapter 3 and, and, and descriptions of Satan in Mark in general. 
So first of all, in the Gospel of Mark, Satan is, the, is one of the first people to know Jesus. In the Gospel of Mark, Satan is one of the first people to know Jesus. Um, John the Baptist recognizes Jesus. He's the first, like, chronologically person who seems to know something of who Jesus is, have something to say about him. But Satan enters upon the scene very quickly thereafter. Jesus is not exactly alone in the desert for 40 days. Satan seems to have been his most persistent company during those days. Before the end of the first chapter of Mark, we read, Jesus cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And listen to this. He would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Because they knew him. Demons are even among the first to confess Jesus' divinity. Just a few verses before the ones we read this evening from chapter 3 of Mark. In verse 11 of that same chapter we read, Whenever the unclean spirits saw Jesus, they fell down before him and shouted, You are the Son of God. The demons confess who Jesus is before his own disciples confess who he is. So again, in the Gospel of Mark, Satan and his minions, they know Jesus. And they're among the first people to know Jesus. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has authority over Satan. And and in this sense, like the Gospel of Mark is, is in no way different than the rest of the New Testament. This is maybe the most important thing to note about Satan as described by the New Testament is that he is the one over whom Jesus has decisive authority. Mark says this straightforwardly in a variety of other locations besides chapter 3 in his gospel. But that Jesus has authority over the demons is evident in what we read tonight in part just by the fact that his authority over the demons is the thing that the Jerusalem scribes take aim at. Right? When these scribes come from Jerusalem to start accusing Jesus of casting out Satan by Beelzebul, they are, they are, what they're taking aim at is his authority over Satan. It is not in dispute, even by Jesus' enemies. And think about all the things about Jesus that are in dispute for his enemies. Um, it seems like all the things that really matter, right? Like that he's the Son of God, that he's the Christ, um, that, that he is divine, that he'll be raised from the dead, etc. One thing that's not in dispute, even by his enemies, though, is that he demonstrably has authority over the minions of Satan. They cannot deny that Jesus has an authority over Satan's reign that no one else does. They they can't deny that. The only thing they can do is try to describe it or spin it in a different direction. What they say about Jesus in this passage isn't an isolated or a random accusation. Um, This isn't just like a one-off moment where the scribes are like kind of just shooting from the hip uh, at Jesus when they say that by Beelzebul he casts out demons. Um, You can tell because we get sort of two different accounts actually of what it is that they're saying about Jesus. So at the beginning of what we read tonight, we read that they're saying by the prince of the demons he casts out the demons. Um, At the end of the passage, the very last verse that we read tonight, uh, we, we read, um, they said that he had an unclean spirit, um, which is a slightly different, it's, it certainly is entailed by what they said earlier, but it's a slightly different description <coughs> than what they say at the beginning of the passage, which I think means that what Mark is recording here is not just a single moment where the scribes are engaging Jesus just one day, but this is a, a sustained attempt on the part of the Jerusalem scribes to smear Jesus. It's, there's a rhetorical campaign that has been strategically launched from Jerusalem. These people come as those dispatched from the central temple authority. They come bringing sound bites about Jesus. 
Jesus responds to them with a kind of parable about the devil. And in this parable, Jesus names Satan the strong man. It's a pretty straightforward description. Um, it's a, to me, it's a really rich description, despite how concise it is. Um, it's a description that points to Satan's formidability. Right? He's a formidable force in the world. The strong man is a bad mofo. He's a keeper of goods, right? But not like, you know, somebody that owns a gas station. Um, these goods, we can tell pretty quickly, are, are ill-gotten and, and sort of protected through a malevolent force. Maybe because Jesus uses the word plunder a couple of times here. To me, the parable of the strong man almost evokes imagery of like a fearsome pirate guarding his booty. If that word booty wasn't so. Hilarious. Uh, but he's a, he's a formidable agent. He's got hordes of ill-gotten goods. And the goods, even though not his, are given up as if they were his, that they did belong to him. They're forsaken, they're abandoned, as lost to him, because they are as fiercely defended as they are. Once he has them, it's taken for granted that there's nothing we can do about it. And these goods are persons. In the larger context of the Gospel of Mark, just based on what Jesus has already been doing in people's lives, it's evident that the goods are nothing less than human beings that the strong man has in his hoard, that he's keeping in his house, that he has under his oppressive reign. And yet, formidable as the strong man is, Jesus' parable is not a parable of uh, like a, a struggle or a contest that has any kind of uncertainty about what the outcome of the contest is going to be. This isn't a wrestling match. Um, there's no dramatic tension in this parable of the strong man. Instead, Jesus decisively subdues the devil. So decisively subdues him that he can plunder his hoard at his leisure. Note here again the eagerness with which the Jerusalem scribes want to spin Jesus' authority over the demons. So they, want, they want to put a spin on his authority over the demons. It suggests that those goods that Jesus is taking back from the strong man, those human beings whose lives are being liberated from his reign, that when the strong man loses those goods, it seems like the scribes and the authority structures that they represent, they stand to lose something too. And we see in that, that overlap, the interpenetration, that there's no clean line between the reign of Satan and the reign of the authority structures of human beings. Likewise, when Jesus responds to the accusations of the scribes by saying, um, no, actually, I have just decisively defeated the devil. Um, what he's saying is, your attempts to overpower me are completely paled by comparison to the victories that I've already won. Your attempts to overpower me are so paltry that they don't even deserve, they kind of don't even deserve his attention. If Jesus has beat the devil, then that entails that the efforts of his merely human would-be opponents are laughable. But what's of more immediate importance for us about the parable of the strong man? Is that the devil figures prominently in the experience of salvation. What's 
important about the parable of the strong man is that there isn't, there, there isn't anyone who lies outside of his hordes. The devil is not a mere artifact of a more archaic way of describing spiritual life. The strong man is not a character reserved only for charismatic denominations of Christians to sort of sensationalize. He's not even just something that Jesus fixes for certain specific people in the New Testament. Rather, all of us need for Jesus to bind the strong man. And this is really the heart of what I mean when I say that to know Jesus is to know the devil. All of us need for Jesus to bind the strong man. And for all of us, what it means that we have been delivered, as we'll say later tonight, from slavery to sin and death, is that he has bound the strong man. And that we now have the option of living outside of the strong man's reign. Salvation is deliverance from the kingdom of Satan. It's not just it's not just being restored to right relationship with God, but being restored to right relationship with God means being delivered from the dominion of Satan. It means being plundered out of the strong man's house. So think here, for example, there's a ton of places that I could point you to in the New Testament. I mean, Ephesians chapter 2 would be one. But but consider Paul's description, Paul's testimony that we read from the Acts of the Apostles tonight. He's describing what it was like to get to know Jesus for the very first time. Paul asks Jesus, who are you, Lord? And Jesus says a few things in answer to that question. And one of the things he says is this, I'm Jesus. I'm the one who delivers you and everyone from the power of Satan to the power of God. This is Jesus' description of himself. To Paul, the Apostle Paul, who becomes, of course, one of the most important preachers in the first century, one of the writers of a great deal of the New Testament, when Jesus, when Paul is first getting to know Jesus, the way that Jesus describes himself is he is the one who delivers humanity from the power of Satan to the power of God. Irenaeus Um, one of those church fathers, a guy from back in the day, um, says this about this passage of scripture. These goods of the strong man, they are those who had been in bondage, whom Satan had unjustly used for his own purpose. So it was a just means by which Satan was led captive, who had led humanity into, into captivity unjustly. In this way, humanity was rescued from the clutches of its possessor. It's an important, an important, Think about that description. Humanity's possessor. Right? That could, I mean, that language suggests that when we say so-and-so is possessed by Satan, we're missing a much larger picture. Like, humanity is possessed by Satan. Humanity was rescued from the clutches of its possessor by the tender mercy of God the Father, who had compassion on his own handiwork and gave to its salvation, restoring it by means of the word Christ, in order that humanity might learn from this actual event that they receive incorruptibility, not in themselves, but by the free gift of God. What it means that Jesus has saved us, we can't explain what that means apart from the way that Jesus has defeated the devil. More deeply, Jesus binds the strong man with his cross. Jesus binds the strong man with his cross. So Jesus' defeat of Satan, if we were to look only at Mark chapter 3, or only at these beginning chapters of Mark and the stuff that he's been doing, casting demons out of people's lives, we might make the mistake of thinking that what it means that Jesus has authority over Satan what it means that he has bound the strong man. We might make the mistake of thinking that, that that authority is nothing more than a kind of divine superpower. 
All right? Like, nobody else is strong enough to beat up Satan, but Jesus has big enough muscles to do it. Right? It's not even reducible to the fact that Jesus is God, and therefore he's capable of marshalling the greatest possible authority over any creature, I mean, of which Satan is one. He's a creature. And that has something to do, certainly, with what it means that Jesus has authority over him, but that's not the deepest part of what it means that Jesus has defeated Satan, that he has bound the strong man. Rather, Jesus binds the strong man because he journeys to the cross and dies there. One place, one clue that this is the case, that Jesus' ultimate and most decisive binding of the strong man is his death on the cross. Is the fact that later in the Gospel of Mark, when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, shortly, so Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ, shortly thereafter, Jesus is like, you're right, and now I'm going to go die. I'm going to go suffer and die and be rejected and executed. And Satan emerges um, visibly by name for the first time since he was as like an agent interacting with Jesus for the first time since the desert at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is going to the cross, and as soon as it becomes evident that Jesus is going to the cross in the narrative, super evident, evident to the disciples, Satan appears trying to get between Jesus and the goal of the cross, which seems to suggest that there's something about Jesus getting to the cross that's like Jesus storming Satan's capital. That if he gets there and does what he means to do, that that will be the death knell for Satan's dominion. Peter confesses, you're the Christ. Jesus responds, the Son of Man must suffer many things. And then what Mark says uh, is that Peter takes Jesus aside and starts to rebuke him for saying that he's going to go die. And then Mark says this, Jesus, seeing his disciples, says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. So to be clear, it's Peter that's getting rebuked in this moment, right? But it's not just Peter that's getting rebuked in this moment. And when Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, he's not just calling Peter names. He's not just saying, you're acting like Satan. Rather, Jesus is speaking to Satan. who it seems, we have to say, is at least in that moment, inhabiting, possessing Peter. The tempter could find no foothold in Jesus in the desert at the beginning of Jesus' ministry where he began to try to thwart Christ on his way to the cross. But the strong man has found a foothold in Peter. He's found in Peter a readily sympathetic ear to his schemes. And Satan is in Peter an ongoing presence of temptation for Jesus. And note that Peter's not rolling around on the ground cutting himself. And that to Peter, what he's saying sounds like anything but satanic or demonic. All he's saying is, I don't want you to die. This is not reasonable what you're saying. There's no reason that you should have to be rejected. We have these hordes of people that are following you. This is not a good strategic plan. <clears throat> Satan here is possessing and tempting, but in the guise of reason and safety and opportunity. He's trying to get out in front of Jesus as Jesus makes his way to the cross. 
And here we need to recognize that the fact that Jesus has bound Satan does mean that he already is defeated, all right? But it does not mean that he doesn't continue to have influence in our lives, that he doesn't continue to represent a formidable opponent and one who is capable, if, if we will not resist him, of derailing us. The strong man's reign is failing. He is bound. His horde is beginning to be plundered. His reign is failing through the advent of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of Satan is already crumbling. And yet, even as Satan's reign fails, Scripture, as well as Christian tradition, attests that even saved persons, even people who are already following Jesus like Peter, who are capable of confessing the truth about who he is, who are already involved in the missionary work that he's doing, we remain in need of being delivered from the strong man, of having his voice rebuked within us and his presence exercised from us. To put it more simply, the fact that the strong man has been bound does not mean that he is completely neutralized as an actor in this world. Instead, there is an option now to participate in Christ's reign, and by so doing, to be delivered out of the reign of Satan in a way that there wasn't an opportunity for that before. But we also can refuse to participate in that reign. Satan is perhaps most universally a possessor. This is a word that we've, we've come across a few times now. It's perhaps most universally a possessor. And we do not have to be foaming at the mouth, gnashing ourselves with stones, to be inhabited by him. To the contrary, our possession, like Peter's, is liable to seem reasonable, commonsensical, and readily agreeable. So I want to I now try to attempt to specify what this, these sort of subtler forms of possession might look like in our own lives. I think there's broadly two arenas where we could continue to see uh, the strong man's defeated but still sort of viciously active reign at play. Right? So one of them we'll just call like uh, the world. And uh, the other one we'll call just us, right? So like, the world at large, and then us ourselves. Um, I think we have this tendency to want to look at what's wrong with the world and be able to offer an account of it, however sort of hopeful or defeated that account might be, however optimistic or sort of rose-colored glasses or however pessimistic it might be, I think most of us, regardless of where you come out on that optimistic or pessimistic, we tend to want to describe what's wrong with the world without having to make reference to the devil. But the observably broken character of this world um, is, is not explicable. What's wrong with the world is not explicable just with reference to uh, things you can take photographs of, all right? Or things that you might read about in the New York Times. Um, the ongoing churn of damage in this world is absolutely a manifestation of the reign of Satan in this world. The injustice that's propagated by local, national, and international political figures, not explicable outside of the influence and the reign of Satan. Um, the way that we respond to what's wrong with the world is liable to 
to also evince the presence of Satan in our own lives. So I think there's roughly two ways that you can respond to what's wrong with the world, besides just like whether or not you name Satan as one that's active in it or not. Um, on the one hand, you could, uh, you could live like a hopeless life in the face. You could understandably live a hopeless life and a defeated life in the face of everything that's wrong. On the other hand, you could become enamored with merely human kingdoms and political orders. You could, you could wrongly place your hope in the power of human, of human reign to undo the reign of Satan in this world. Okay, so the second arena. Um, the places of possession in our own lives. Um, one, this is a very broad category, but like habitual sin, and like sin that you are so used to doing that it doesn't occur to you to do anything except ask forgiveness for it, but you never actually repent of it. You never actually begin to live in such a way where you're hoping that one day it could cease to be a part of your life. Um, that is a place where Satan has a foothold in your life. Right? Not just in the sin, but in the hopelessness about the sin. In the way that you take it for granted as just a feature of what it's like to be you. So sin, Satan as tempter, but not just Satan as tempter, Satan as accuser, Satan as the one that holds us in the thrall of condemnation. Um, I think that first thing I said about like how Satan is, like he's the one making you sin or inviting you to sin, and he's the one sort of holding you in the cycle of sin. I think most of you probably heard that in youth group at some point or other. At least if you went to a Baptist youth group, you did. Um, and they were right about that. They get some things right. Um, but I think, we're, I think less frequently do we recognize that insofar as we live under condemnation, insofar as we live as accused people, Incapable of getting out from under the weight of a ceaseless accusation. Insofar as we live under self-hatred and a kind of unending shame or drivenness, that too is a stronghold of, of Satan's possession in our lives. That is a place where we're living under the lies uh, of of someone who no longer actually is in charge, who no longer has reign or say over what happens to us, who, whose voice has been cast out, as we read, and that reading from Revelation. What's common to both of these kinds, both of these places that we're liable to see the possession of Satan in our, in our lives, whether it's our disposition towards what's happening in the world or our disposition towards what's happening in ourselves. Um, in more or less obvious ways, they entail a kind of giving up, right? So if you set, even if you, if you set all your hopes on worldly powers, on the right politician, on the right kind of social reform, even that is a kind of giving up on what the Lord is capable of doing in and through delivering us as the body of Christ from the of Satan. But certainly, if you are resigned to sin, a certain kind of sin always being a part of your life, if you can't imagine what it would be like to know yourself as loved by God and to begin your day and your life from that place, then there's a resignation in your life. There's a kind of giving up a fatalism, a sense of defeat, that this is the way that it's always going to be, right? It's treating the world as if the strong man were not bound, as if the kingdom of God had not decisively begun to interrupt Satan's reign in this world. So there's a kind of giving up that we're liable to be tempted toward in the places of Satan's possession in our lives.
But knowing Jesus means knowing him as the one who has bound the strong man. Knowing Jesus means knowing that we live in a world where the reign of Satan is failing. That his defeat is certain. His final, decisive defeat has begun, and it's his annihilation as a ruler is certain on the horizon. Malicious though he remains in his attacks on humanity, his defeat is certain. And so there are three things that we can do, three sort of broad things we can do in the face of that truth and as ways of knowing Jesus as the defeater of the strong man. The first is we can espouse the Bible's wakefulness about, about the fact that life in a fallen world is life lived in warfare against Satan. We should not pretend that we live in a cosmos devoid of Satan as if the demonic were, in fact, just an archaic primitive concept that's been displaced by psychology and modern medicine. We should take what the Bible says about the devil at face value. Stop being embarrassed about it. And, and let the Bible's wakefulness be something that we, we learn, however slowly, how to, how to take up in our own lives and the way that we see the world. What's at stake in that wakefulness is nothing less than living under the reign of a monster or living under the reign of the one who has delivered us from that monster. Secondly, we can participate in the defeat of the strong man. We, we can exercise a share of Jesus' authority in the defeat of the strong man. We began to see this, or y'all began to see this, I wasn't here, but last Tuesday, um, whenever you read about Jesus beginning to send out the apostles, and one of the things he does is he gives them authority over the unclean spirits. They already, in practice, they have a share, a practical share, in the ability to, to cast Satan out of people's lives. We participate in the defeat of the strong man. Firstly, as exorcists and as preachers, um, and I'm kind of using these terms loosely here. But uh, here's what I mean. If it's the case, as I've said, that possession is a more common thing and a less horror movie kind of phenomenon most of the time, then we're liable to think that it is. If it's right to say that in that moment that Peter is reluctant about following Jesus to the cross, that there's an instance of possession there. If it's right to say that when we live in the thrall of condemnation, that in some real sense, that that's a place where Satan has a stronghold in our life, then it's also right to say that we need one another to be doing the work of exorcism in our lives. And we need to be doing that work for others. We have received the Holy Spirit who is the authority and power by which Satan, by which Jesus is casting out Satan. We have the name of Jesus who has broken the strong man's hold on us. And we have the word of the gospel. And these are the powers by which we become exorcists and preachers in one another's lives. Part of what I'm thinking about here is is what, what we read in that passage from Revelation, um, where the writer of Revelation says, well, let me read what he says, so I'll get it wrong. Where did it go? It's the word of his testimony thing. Yeah, the accuser of our comrades has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. But they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. They have conquered him, right? They're participating in Jesus conquering him. They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. When you bring witness into one another's lives of the gospel, you are already shining light into the dark recesses where Satan seeks to have a stronghold. When you bring the truth of what the blood of Jesus means into one another's lives, 
You are already involved in casting Satan out of his strongholds of condemnation and accusation in one another's lives. Become one another's exorcists and preachers. Be the voice of the gospel in each other's lives. And be the presence of the Spirit who has real dominion over the dominion of Satan. Secondly, we can participate in the defeat of the strong man by becoming martyrs. And here I'm thinking of many things, but again, just to refer back to this reading from Revelation. They've conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, for, so that it's not just that they said stuff, but for they did not cling to life, even in the face of death. They didn't cling to life, even in the face of death. Right, that moment that Satan has authority over Peter, where he seems almost to be possessing Peter, it's not coincidental that that's a moment where Peter is rejecting the cross and clinging to his own life instead. Not just to Jesus' life, but to his own safety, to his own preservation, to his own needs, his own sense of security. In that moment, he's opened himself to the authority and power of Satan. But by not clinging to life, even in the face of death, the book of Revelation says that we conquer the devil. And so by taking up our cross, we participate in Jesus' defeat of the strong man. Probably the most common encounter we will all have with the devil as tempter in our lives are the myriad occasions when we are tempted to refuse to suffer. The impulse is to preserve ourselves. The impulse not to take risks that might have real consequences in the course of following Jesus. Instead, if we lose our lives, we'll find them. They conquer him. Because they did not cling to life, even in the face of death. The last thing we can do is to inhabit the hope that the strong man is bound. Um, to inhabit the hope that the strong man is bound. I think what I'm talking about here is what do you think is possible? I mean, how risky are you willing to be in what you think could take place, what you think can change in your own life and the lives of people you love and in this world? Are you inhabiting hope, the hope that Jesus has bound the strong man in such a way that his deliverance from Satan's destructive power really is the thing that creates the horizon of what you think could happen in this lifetime. What it means to inhabit hope is to give up on giving up. And that's kind of horribly broad and it kind of sounds cheesy. But what it means to inhabit the hope that Jesus has found the strong man is that we don't have to give up. That we can live in trust and expectation of deliverance, real deliverance from Satan's Authority. We experience Satan's authority as this cycle of sin, as, as the churn of condemnation and accusation. And in the horrific ways that humanity on the whole lives by devouring itself and is self-destructive, preying upon one another. And in the light of all of that, the experience of Satan's reign is liable to make us give up and feel defeated. But what it means to inhabit hope, and this might sound really modest, is to be capable of persevering in a world where Satan's reign is crumbling but still is there. To be able to persevere instead of to accept defeat as the norm. Whether that means persevering in the face of the horrors of the world or the horrors within yourself and those you love.
That Jesus has bound the strong man means that you do not have to give up. And you don't have to live a life that's predicated on a kind of giving up. However we participate in Jesus' defeat of the strong man, and tonight as we come to this table, we do so in expectation, or maybe I should say I challenge you to do so in expectation, that we will see the reign of Satan giving way to the kingdom of God. Here at this table we eat and drink the fruit of the cross, which is to say that we are sharing in the spoils of Jesus' plunder of the strong man. We come to this table as those feasting in the victory of Jesus over the devil. Amen.